I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. As one of the co-founders and now executive director of the non-profit division of Cooperation Jackson, Kali Akuno is working to transform the city into a beacon of radical politics. For the uninitiated, Jackson is the capital city of Mississippi, with a population of around 200,000 people. It's 80% black population, making it one of the blackest cities in the US, and with 60% of people living below the poverty line. Cooperation Jackson is working, in the context of colonialism, white supremacy and patriarchy, to upend these dynamics through the building of a solidarity economy to, as he puts it, transform the material circumstances of the people living in Jackson. This work has been aided by the election, in Jackson, of a number of radical and progressive politicians, including Mayor Chokwe Lumumba, who died in 2014, and more recently his son, Chokwe Anta Lumumba. What's happening in Jackson is a story that has spread around the world and inspired many others to follow suit. It is work that is firmly rooted in the asking of what-if questions and the creation of new models which imagine what an economy can be. It was a huge honour then, recently, to be able to speak to Cali. Much of the work is rooted in what Cali refers to as the infamous Jackson Cush Plan, the founding vision document which underpins much of what is happening in the city today. I started by asking him to tell me more about it. Uh, I was the, uh, the principal author of, of the plan as, as it came to the public. Um, but it was something that was put together first as a uh, study group within uh, the New African People's Organization and the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, uh, really shortly after September 11th um, was when the study group first started to, to come together to try and adjust to the new political reality uh, that we kind of saw unfolding uh, within the United States and, and a, you know, which required deeper conversation. But uh, one of our main concerns was uh, that many of the uh, practices and, and acts that were technically illegal in the 50s, 60s and 70s uh, under the guise of the counterintelligence program or COINTELPRO uh, being operated by the FBI, the, the Patriot Act and things like it, the executive orders that George Bush um, signed in secret and some of them he made public, that they were going to make all of them the most egregious acts of spying and espionage, uh, both internationally and domestically, it was going to make them legal. And that, that came to pass. Uh, so we just try to, you know, try to think that since our, our organization and other organizations have been targeted by these programs in the past, um, you know, we needed to be kind of um, use some some foresight and try to do some repositioning of ourselves um, to be able to both kind of execute our own uh, vision and notion of social liberation uh, and how to do it under new circumstances. And after, you know, some trial and experiment, about a five-year period, uh, it was really after Hurricane Katrina um, and it, its overall political and social impact uh, that the Jackson Cush plan came into focus. And one of the things that was very clear was that the displacement of, uh, you know, the kind of the forced displacement of the, uh, the internally displaced persons from New Orleans and throughout Mississippi and in the southern Mississippi and in Louisiana, it changed the political calculus. Um, it enabled, you know, more, more ultra conservative members to be elected in Congress in both states uh, because those <clears throat> communities have basically been 
um, uh, moved out and it set up some new voting districts and new voting dynamics. And we looked at that and say, said, okay, how can we kind of change this uh, situation, recognizing where we had uh, our strength and what we needed to build upon? We came up with a, a basis of where uh, our organization would try to kind of concentrate its energy and concentrate its forces. And after about a year of really just going through our own internal analysis, everything just kept looking at DAX in Mississippi. And so in 2006, we really started to concentrate on building on the historical legacy of the New African uh, Independence Movement, which our organization came out and its work in, in Mississippi and Jackson in particular, uh, the organizational base uh, that existed here that the Malcolm X grassroots movement had been kind of diligently working on since the late 1980s. Uh, and we thought this kind of represented the best place uh, for us to uh, really try to work on uh, a, a new, to work on implementing, I should say, a, a new vision, one that dealt with uh, trying to deal with the climate crisis in a real way, because that was also a big thing that we took away from Hurricane Katrina, was kind of recognizing um, that climate change was, was here. It's not something that was like coming in the future, that it was present and it was going to have an impact uh, particularly in, in uh, the Deep South and in particular upon black people who are heavily concentrated in the Deep South and that we need to be proactive uh, in trying to take it on. And for us, that meant both kind of exercising political power to be in a position to uh, kind of shape some of the policies that would, would curb, um, you know, all the practices of you know, of extraction and, and utilization of fossil fuels that leads to, uh, uh, you know, the climate crisis, uh, but also how do we, you know, meet the basic needs of our community uh, to address the, the inequities that we have, you know, long faced. So we just started to think, you know, like what are the best practices out there? What are the best tools out there uh, from around the globe, not just within the United States, that we can kind of draw upon uh, and, and find a way to practice and put the utilization in our local context um, that would shift some of those relations and come up with new ways of producing for our community um, that was, you know, as carbon neutral as possible and, and had the least amount of impact on the environment as possible. Um, so so these are the things that were kind of the background, uh, if you would, uh, to the public release of that document uh, uh, first in 2008 uh, that became the Jackson Cush Plan. Uh, and then kind of moved into practice on the higher level in 2009 when Chuck Willamumbu was um, elected first to the city council. But the basic concept, there's three basic th things that we're trying to implement within this plan in a coordinated way. So one is independent electoral politics. Uh, the other one is, is kind of what we call the deepening of democracy by creating dual democratic institutions that run kind of parallel to the state that both keep it in check you know, hold it accountable, hold elected officials accountable, but also uh, is organized to do to try to develop a program of of autonomous development and uh, implementation, things that we do for ourselves that the government cannot do and does not have the resources to do, and that is best expressed through the development of of the people's assemblies that we've been working on building, really over the past twenty something years, uh, plus. Uh, and then there's building and developing the, the solidarity economy. And that's that particular piece is the challenge that Cooperation Jackson took on and is, is working on trying to uh, fulfill. And those are the three basic elements 
uh, of the Jackson Cush plan uh, that we're trying to get to work in some harmony towards, you know, implementing a vision that will create broad equity, restorative, you know, uh, uh, justice in our community and regenerate, you know, the uh, uh, cleaner, safer, healthier environment and economy. So one of the one of the things that uh, that I've been exploring is this the whole idea of what if questions like uh, an example is I went to Liège in Belgium where they've they're completely reimagining the, the the food system of the city and they and they started with a what if question which was what if in a generation's time the majority of food eaten in the city were grown in the land immediately around the city and by opening up that what if question and inviting people in all sorts of possibilities start to open up i wonder if 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 you were to going back to 2008 if you could sort of distill what you were trying to do there into a what-if question, what would it have been? <laughs> that was one of the questions that we have. We asked, actually ourselves. We, we did a bunch of what-ifs. Uh, and and what if, if, you know, we could, we framed it as what if we could make the city uh, food sovereign, you know, by 2025 was the way we actually put that question. Uh, um, you know, what if uh, we could reorient uh, the economy to work along cooperative lines. You know, what if we could create uh, a human rights charter for restorative justice in the community? Um, you know, these were the what if questions, you know, that were kind of interlocking, intersecting. And if each one of those we came up with kind of a corresponding programmatic uh, demand. So the human rights charter, human rights commission, uh, creating a, a cooperative vehicle uh, and then setting aside certain goals. So, uh, uh, we had about 10 what if questions, I would say, that were really kind of the, the center and the anchor of our project. And, and uh, I, I can't remember them all at this point in their original form, but they basically had to do with, um, number one, another one outside of the three I just mentioned. Another one was how do we ensure uh, workers' rights? Uh, Mississippi is what's called in the United States, even for your audience, a right to work state, which means um, it's, a, it's a measure of uh, uh, protecting employers from workers unionizing and just treats everybody as individuals in kind of bars and prohibits or at least makes harder the ability to do collective bargaining uh, so we can be kind of workers power. And that's a, a a very essential tool that's been used against progressive and radical forces in Mississippi for quite some time. So dealing with that particular question, um, you know, we we asked a big question of, uh, you know, what if we could have a, a broad participatory democracy? What would that look like? You know, what voices would it, it lift up? You know, what voices would it uh, ask to, to play a different role, right? right? To what we call step up, step back, uh, and to challenge the, the kind of both uh, formal and informal exercise of power that different uh, groups have, you know, uh, within our overall system, that the the order of patriarchy that, that men have over women, uh, in our case, you know, the historic inequity around uh, race and how that plays out in real economic terms. So uh, 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 in, in a general sense, whites over black, uh, these were the what if questions that we asked, you know, in a, in a deeper one. I think the ultimate one that we're still kind of working on is, you know, what if we could create uh, a truly equitable Mississippi was one of the bigger ones, right? What if we could, and what it tr concretely transformed is, 
could we make Mississippi kind of a, not just Jackson, but Mississippi, a beacon of radical politics? And our answer to that question uh, has been and is yes. And what it is really kind of focused on is what if, you know, we could organize uh, large sectors of uh, the white working class in Mississippi, which has been, which is, you know, outside of a brief period in certain counties, particularly in the southeast portion of the state, has never really been done. Um, but we looked at that what if and said that there's a, you know, generation that was coming of age um, uh, basically since uh, Barack Obama was president that has a very different uh, worldview than many of the previous uh, generations of, of uh, white people in the state that we could work with and ally with. Uh, but we have to figure out and, and been, been, been working and struggling to figure out how do we stay in consistent dialogue and relation uh, with each other and how do we create uh, as many opportunities of collaboration as possible. So these are kind of the what if questions that really structured our project. And it's not like these questions ever stop. Uh, um, you know, even even when you accomplish one, I think it just really opens up uh, in many respects uh, more questions that kind of need to be tackled uh, uh, and solved. Um, but I think that's a good thing. And, and I know one of the things that you know, your investigation is the imagination. And if you don't ask yourself that, you know, where I support that question and why I like it is that if you don't ask yourself that, that question, um, then you really just kind of, you know, you, you, it, it kind of keeps you in a static view of the world. And that you just, you know, I'm going to play by the rules as they exist, and I'm going to uh, just try to deal with with the the terms and the alliances that that presently are, which is very limiting uh, in from a very, you know, from a political space to be able to to think about well, what is it that that uh, we might be able to actually do uh, to move a particular force or get it to see things differently um, that will speak to both. You know, it's interest, but also it's aspirations. And we think both of those things are possible. Just organizing along kind of self-interest, I think we find to be very limiting. And this is a lesson I think many black organizers have, have found. I think if we look real deep in, in trying to build multiracial alliances in the United States, um, you know, that the way the narrative is often constructed and, and lived, you would think black workers and white workers have a lot in common, but there are clearly a bunch of cultural uh, kind of constructs and edifices that are put in place, which gets us to see our interests quite differently. So we said we have, we have to also work towards people's aspirations, not just their uh, self-interest, because that could, in our case, we know historically, uh, lead to some very reactionary and destructive things directed towards the black community. Um, so it's that aspiration piece of things that speaks to the imagination question that you have. And how do we tap into people's dreams and aspirations, I think is a critical thing that, that we at least speak to as part of uh, uh, an aim and objective that we are pursuing and have to kind of then plan our strategies and actions and, and um, you know, how we engage, how we factor all those, those different things in so it's not just kind of one dimensional work. I, I wondered, you know, in terms of in terms of the what if questions, you know, it strikes me that there is a, you know, one of the places that I look to for the most 
like a can I get the most inspiration for for that around is you know people and movements who've managed to keep really big bold what if questions alive like like the prison abolition movement in America that that what what if there were no prisons what if there were no police and what if the justice system worked in a completely different way you know keeping that kind of in huge what if question alive for a long period of time are, are there any sort of tips or lessons or suggestions that, that that people in the rest of the world can learn from those movements about how you keep a big what if question alive over time um that's a good question <laughs> yeah i mean, really think about that i mean the first thing i think uh, is being grounded in history so for me i don't, I don't think it's an accident that the abolitionist movement has chosen that name. The prison abolitionist movement has chosen that name. Uh, and I know that there was a debate around when critical resistance was first starting to use that after, you know, the, the conference it had in, in uh, 1998, uh, which I would credit as being um, like the critical catalyst for, for that particular, for that movement, right? Um, I think it's by, it's no accident that they came from organizers uh, who were very much steeped in uh, the black radical organizing tradition and the black radical imagination. And I think the critical thing, why, what I'm pointing to there is kind of, I think if you look at our history, you know, uh, you have, have to see a long arc within it. Uh, and I think in order to stay grounded, uh, not just feel overwhelmed and, and uh, depressed, um, but to, you know, one of the things that for me, I guess, to make it so subjective, when I run into some challenging times, uh, I remember my uh, grandmother's, you know, my father's grandmother, uh, my grandmother, often saying, you know, if you think it rough, thinking how rough it was during slavery. And for me, that would always be recentering. Like, oh, okay, right, 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 right. You know, like, um, I have far more agency, far more opportunity, far more things in my disposable disposal uh, than my ancestors had that I could use, um, you know, to come up with some solution, right? So it's regrounding. And I think uh, being grounded in in the abolitionist movement, the prison abolitionist movement being regrounded in that history and that narrative points towards, hey, you're going to have to stick with this in the long term and not just be deluded by, you know, the the kind of reforms that come here and there that may be a step on the path towards uh, uh, abolition, right? No police, no prisons, but could also be a stopgap measure to kind of keep the status quo in place. And, you know, I think it raises the question, like, well, if we would accept it, you know, some new terms under slavery, some of the things that people might know historically were being offered by the South uh, as a concession to the North to be like, you know, we can make it easier, you know, but if it wasn't for the abolitionists of the 18th and 19th century saying, no, there's no way to make being chattel easier, you know, you're still chattel, ultimately condition uh, of being at your owner's disposal uh, doesn't change, and we have to end that relationship. So I think having a vision and and staying on course with that vision is very key 
to a long-term kind of organizing and the long-term trajectory. And I think, you know, keeping the morale of, of the, the different social forces that you are engaging up so that people understand it's going to take a while for us to get to where we're going and that, the, you know, there can be and there should be and there must be reforms along the way, but we have to kind of always stay, you know, consistently oriented towards the North Star to know clearly the end goal is, you know, maybe far away, it may be kind of seem like a movement target, but let's not be distracted. I think just, you know, prop up the existing system or prop up, you know, change a little things here and, and there. And because ultimately we're trying to change relationships of hierarchy and exploitation, you know, and how do we stay oriented, stay focused on that? But I think being grounded in that kind of history and them choosing that narrative is very important because you can then look at, uh, and draw, I think, both inspiration, courage, and a grounding from how folks under far worse conditions, uh, you know, chipped away, uh, you know, at the at the the elephant that they were fighting, and and made ground and, and actually brought about some fundamental mental change. You know, we still have a long way to go, but I think those, to me, that would be the biggest lesson. I think it's just what we would call, you know, from the black radical tradition. And just being grounded, you know, in your history and uh, the perspective of that and where you're going to, to kind of just keep sight and keep keep faith, really. One of the one of the things I've been doing a lot of research about and talking to neuroscientists about is about how um, anxiety and trauma and fear and stress lead to the parts of our brain that are most um, uh, vital to the imagination shrinking and contracting and our, and our ability to think about the future in kind of positive and, and hopeful ways uh, shrinks and disappear. And I, I wonder how, how you've seen uh, in your community, you know, the, that phenomena occurring and also more particularly how you've seen the work that you've done and the new story that you've bought and the new possibilities of that how you've seen that shift that or change that or start to uh, open up the future in a way that wasn't there before yeah you know, that's a good question um the trauma is real i mean i don't think anybody should uh trauma and the and its impact because uh, it can be, it is, at least in our community, very stifling uh, and, and disabling. Um, and the thing that we have really stressed upon, and I think has been a benefit uh, to the work here in Jackson, uh, is consistency. And I can't really stress that enough. Uh, so one of the things that we always tell people is that what you what you're witnessing over the past 10 years in Jackson uh, really is the accumulation of decades of, of groundwork that was laid uh, that took persistence, determination, and perseverance. That little, what was talking about in the previous question, that chipping away, you know, even when certain ideas weren't popular, even when certain uh, positions you know, we're not popular, people sticking with it, uh, staying true, staying committed, being in the community in various ways, you know, uh, organizing for political campaigns, you know, organizing youth around arts and uh, sports. These are all things that, you know, um, 
the organization just remained grounded in since the early 1970s. And I think that just built up a door of kind of goodwill and, and really a, uh, a solid faith that even, you know, what we found, I think, from that, particularly during the first election campaign as, as a measure, I think what we found, we didn't expect initially in 2009, 2008, 2009, uh, when, we, when we ran Chokeway for mayor, we thought we would get a good placing, but we weren't quite sure that we would we would win. Uh, and we thought this would be a good way to kind of get some of the message out and broaden some of the ideas. Because in, in large part, the initial uh, objective I had, uh, as well as one of the people who suggested that we, we run one of the two key people, the initial thought that I had was uh, to really try to gain a deeper understanding of, of how many people in our community were impacted by our work over the years and how many people uh, believe in many of the ideas that we believed in. Uh, and then we were going to come up with a plan to really kind of consolidate that base. So we were, we were shocked, you know, to the degree that, that there was, there was already a broad kind of base from that. And then asking people, you know, how did they, you know, know about our work? And some of the things that were most interesting were people would remember, um, the basketball programs that we did and the art programs that, that, you know, the organization had engaged in. And that would be of equal weight to, you know, we know you guys led this, this campaign, uh, against the, the Klan. You know, we had several Klan members who were on the police force in the, in the 1980s. And so it, like to have those things speak to equal measure in so many people's minds, it just really demonstrated to us that it was the consistency you know, over a long period of time that just enabled people like, we trust you all. You know, we know you'll fight for social justice. You won't back down under certain circumstances. If there's a problem, you know, particularly dealing with kind of racial and economic issues, you guys are there speaking up, coming up with proposals, coming up with demands, you know, that you were there. And that was a consistent force. That was a major um, point of entry, I think, for uh, for us, and I think um, in our work, what we see is like how do you kind of over overcome some of that trauma and some of that um, disillusionment, disaffection is being consistent in in your practice, uh, more so than even being consistent in what you, you kind of preach per se, but being consistent in your practice, I think, is real critical because one of the, the deep things that I think you know, we here, particularly around the politics, is, you know, uh, within our system, watch that, you know, it's going to be the same old thing regardless of who gets in office, right? Um, so it's like the imagination is already closed. And and for us, <clears throat> we've been trying to demonstrate in practice, hey, these are the ideas that we, we've had, these are the things, the proposal we put out and say that we make some change. And we've been consistent in pursuing, building towards them and trying to advance them. And you can see it's not just the same old, same old. Uh, that, I think, from our experience, I would say, and to try to generalize it, that is very important towards both dealing with trauma, uh, but also getting people to be able to kind of think beyond the immediate circumstance and see that some alternatives are possible, right? Uh, and that there's some way for people to engage. Uh, but it's a constant struggle. I mean, uh, it's it's a it's a constant struggle. It's not like you know, uh, sometimes like two steps forward, two steps back um, that we've seen with a lot of our members 
you know, over over the years of kind of ups and downs. Um, and it, but I think that being consistent uh, in the practice is still what's enabled all of us, uh, I think, to kind of keep our minds open and being open to new ideas and being receptive to new ideas, you know, because there's some there's a grounding that's there that that offers and points to a new way forward as opposed to you ran into a challenge, you folded under the challenge. Um, you know, why should I have faith? Why should I believe? And when you face a challenge, stand up to it. You may not advance, but you don't lose your positioning. I think that we can demonstrate in our case, uh, that's very, you know, it, uh, without that, there is no bedrock really to be able to think of something new and to really to say and have confidence that not only can I think of it, but I can work towards accomplishing it because I've seen it happen under these circumstances and conditions that in our case, I would say is very similar. Uh, it's something I would definitely like to impart upon anybody who's listening to this to understand uh, kind of the history and the trajectory of the work here in Jackson. One of the questions that I've asked every person that I've interviewed uh, is if it had been you who had been elected as the prime minister, as the president of the U.S. in in November 2016, President Akuno, and you had run on a platform of uh, make America imaginative again. So you you felt actually that there needed to be a huge focus rather than on innovation and growth and all that, that actually what we needed was to really boost the collective imagination, whether in education, in public life, in politics, in in commerce and all that. So across the board, we needed a sort of a uh, like a, and like a moonshot uh, race or sort of program to really refire uh, the imagination. What might you do in your first hundred days in the Oval Office? The first major thing uh, that I would have done uh, would have been to really shut down most of the military operations of the United States. That would have been the first thing on my agenda. And I would have stated it as we need to take responsibility for our overall uh, emissions on the planet and that we are the major, and this institution in particular is the major contributor to carbon emissions on the planet. And so how do we address that? How do we take concrete action, demonstrate the world our seriousness on many different levels? That would have been the first major piece. And I would have supported that with a domestic program of saying, we are going to make sure that every government facility within the United States uh, operates off of, you know, clean energy. And we're going to do that within a, within a five-year period. That would have been the two major things that would have gotten me in a world of trouble immediately, but would have kicked off, uh, you know, uh, uh, my presidency uh, in this case, in this imaginatory case, and really would have just opened the field up uh, around, well, how are you going to do, you know, how are you going to make those changes given the world that the United States is, you know, the post-World War II world, the United States was made largely responsible for restructuring, for structuring. That would have called for a profoundly different restructuring than what Donald Trump is trying to force upon the world right now. And it would have been one that you could have easily, especially coming off the, 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 the Paris Climate Agreement, 
despite my critics, many criticisms of that, but it would have been a, a surefire way of saying we are serious, we mean business, and we we expect the rest of the world to get on board with this, and we're opening up some new opportunities for everybody to engage in towards moving the world in, in a carbon neutral direction. If someone would have did that, it would be an entirely, or just even a portion of that. Just say, I'm going to, 20% of the U.S.'s military stuff is shutting down, and we're going to, you know, convert all of this to, to solar, which itself would be a major thing. Just that would have profoundly changed the conversation and the, the, the economy itself on a global scale. You, you talked about the, the participatory democracy, the, 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 you have transition assemblies, I think, and like citizens assemblies. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that sort of, um, you know, I, I, I went to Barcelona where they have these neighborhood assemblies and the neighborhood assemblies uh, feed in their suggestions, which help to shape policy. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of what that looks like in Jackson. Uh, you know, I've been to Barcelona. I've been to a couple of them. I'm, I'm a big fan of the PA. Learned a lot from them. Um, and even before then, I think a lot of the things that we tried to emulate um, came from some of the assemblies that myself and many others uh, within the Makamish grassroots movement, uh, experienced and witnessed and participated in, in Chiapas, right? So, um, ours always kind of had a balance and there's always a constant struggle here, um, A, to keep them consistent at different points in time, but B, uh, to make them more than kind of expert talk shops. And, and, uh, so there's a way in which there's, um, a question typically is a question that's being posed, you know, how they've been experienced in Jackson over the years. There's a question that gets posed, you know, by a large, a large number of people uh, in the community, uh, which requires a certain level of those who are doing the proposing. They've already done a level of organizing uh, and a level of mobilization to say, hey, we need to talk about this. It would be potholes in the street or, you know, some new law that's, going, that's being proposed or something that either people want to pass or propose. You know, let's talk about it in a broader audience. So typically people have done their own homework to mobilizing and base, raising the question. Then it comes before a broad body to say, we want to tackle this question. Then the first component of that typically is, and this is where this balance, I think, is a constant struggle, is the proposition piece, like putting the idea forward and then having people who have, you know, uh, the most knowledge and experience with that subject kind of speak up and offer their perspective. Uh, insight and typically there's you know like two or three people who do that normally who don't share the same views uh, um, and it's not something that we have traditionally kind of planned that way and normally just organically kind of happens that way um, uh, then then there's a the period of you know debate and proposal sometimes that take place within the same meeting sometimes it takes place you know uh, sometime later after folks have kind of been educated and informed uh, and then the last part is hey what are we going to do about it you know, in, in an open discussion uh, and debate towards kind of crafting some uh, action plans and policies and proposals and, and usually a little bit of both. Like, what are the things that we going to do? What is our own action plan to kind of make, you know, this collective decision happen? And then if there's something that needs to happen, you know, to, to kind of put pressure or give direction to the city government, you know, how that's going to be proposed. Typically, um, there, are, there are at least, a, there's typically a fair number of our city council people who attend any kind of assembly or anything that's called. Um, now, they're not allowed to make any formal decisions there because, you know, the sunshine laws and things that we have here in the, in the United States uh, where they can't be, you know, doing business 
uh, without a public notice, et cetera. Um, so that, that kind of piece happens. And typically if something is directed towards government, municipal government, folks would then take that to city hall, uh, and raise it as a demand or to raise it as a proposal. Um, so that's, that's kind of the general life of how they, they work, uh, um, here, which, you know, I would say in, in there's cultural differences between, you know, expression of what I've seen here in Barcelona and other places you may engage, but that basic kind of proposition, education, debate, and then, you know, uh, proposal, that kind of four stage process, I think is fairly universal to almost any assembly I've ever participated in or witnessed. And ours is fundamentally no different in, in that regard uh, here in Jackson. And uh, what difference does it make having having a, the mayor on board, having ha- having a mayor who's enthusi- who's part of this process? You know, it's challenging. I mean, we, we right now in Jackson, um, we are kind of in the same place that I think, uh, going back to Barcelona, where pod, some of the social activists are with Barcelona and Camo. Like, there's deep connections, uh, even personal connections, uh, but how the expectations of what, you know, a movement kind of in power could and should be doing and what kind of compromises those who are in office uh, have to make, you know, there's constant tension there, um, which I think personally is, is and should be generative, but in that all always interpreted that way. And what I mean by generative, I think it, it helps to breed kind of new ideas, opens the imagination. Um, if you can kind of keep the acrimonious stuff uh, out of it, personal accusations and uh, things of that nature. And I think ours is teeters on sometimes being generative, sometimes not. Um, uh, and, and I think that's kind of a natural role that should be played between movements, you know, because the thing it all remind me of as much as I sometimes disagree, you know, with my old comrade, who's now the mayor, uh, around a number of different things. The very fact that, that I'm in a position to uh, disagree and propose alternatives is profoundly different than the alternative. So, you know, I always try to tell people, remember the balance. It's, it's better to have someone that, who you, you can uh, hold accountable than someone you cannot hold accountable and to keep, keep that kind of perspective uh, uh, in mind. It doesn't mean that they're going to mind immediately, and ours definitely isn't. Uh, but it's a far different position than, than leaders we've had in the past, you know, who've sat in the mayor's chair, who will not listen, do not care to listen at, uh, at all. And there's very little levers outside of, you know, going to the ballot box in the next the next election and voting him or her out of office. Uh, this is a different type of engagement. And, and I think we should always be wise to understand the qualitative difference between the two, uh, even though there may be tension and, and, you know, the government cannot or the administration uh, move on certain ideas in the way that we might think they're possible. Um, I think this is where we got to have that long-term vision and reminders that, you know, what we've put them to do in place to do under the, the current space-time conditions is move the needle and make a certain kind of sense of reform, but they're not going to be able to implement the full long-term North Star vision, you know, within a four-year cycle or eight-year cycle even. Um, and so us to keep that kind of in mind, and it's, it's incumbent upon the social movement to, to not lose its bearing and to keep its long-term vision plan and imagination active uh, because those who sit in the office are going to, they're going to run into a ton of constraints. Uh, by just the very nature of the system. And it's our job to always create the conditions 
that enable folks to go beyond those constraints. I, I spoke to Henry Giroux. You know Henry Giroux, the the activist mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. He 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 was he uses this term, the Trump disimagination machine. Oh, <laughs> which which <laughs> I really like. Term. And and yeah. and I just wondered, I wondered what your reflections might be on that, on what what that feels like. Like in, in what way is the current administration? Does it feel like a, a an assault on people's imagination? Well, you know, we have a, there's a little running joke that's, that uh, is here in Mississippi um, that I think we've kind of helped construct. But, you know, there's a running joke since Trump got elected that, that we tell people, I know I tell people all the time, I, I, I didn't make it up, I've heard it first. You know, uh, we, all, we always joke with people, you know, uh, welcome to Mississippi. Now you know what we've been living through the last hundred years since Reconstruction. Right. Um, yeah, he's like, welcome to our world. Now you know what we feel like. You know, this is what we've been going through for quite some time. And you know, I think the lesson from Mississippi uh, is that uh, keeping your own um, orientation, your own principles, practice, uh, and dare I say, faith is necessary uh, to overcome. You know, just the, the the narrowness and the utter reaction of forces like Trump. Um, they've always been here. You know, in some places, given more and more expression than others, like in Mississippi, they've basically been in power since Reconstruction. Um, uh, you know, and to not lose lose sight of that and to think that all is lost um, in this moment, and that there are ways in which you know we can and, and must. Uh, I think there are a lot of lessons that people can, can gain, you know, from uh, the Black Liberation Movement as, as, as it's kind of worked and operated here in Mississippi over that course of time. That now that doesn't mean it's not a scary time. I don't want to give people that impression. Um, uh, Trump is very dangerous. I think becoming more dangerous by the day. Um, you know, some of it just out of uh, fear for the Mueller investigation and, and what they may lead and conclude to. But I also think, you know, they, as we experience it here in Mississippi, you know, those forces, the right forces, uh, they have a very clear and articulated worldview, um, and they are willing to go to extreme lengths uh, to fulfill their vision, and we should not underestimate that at all, um, you know, as has played out in um, Europe, you know, during the first and second world wars, the second one in particular. Um, you know, so we, we need to be on our P's and Q's. Um, but not, you know, I think the lesson of Mississippi is, um, when times are rough, there's still agency that can't must exercise. And you can't, you know, wallowing in kind of a defeatist, uh, kind of attitude, sure way to be defeated, you know, so, uh, stay grounded uh, and, and utilize what what opportunities and strength you have. I think it's a key, key lesson that I would say should be drawn from from Mississippi, and that we, we're never completely uh, out of it unless we surrender. That's uh, we I've that's uh, I've taken an hour of your time. It's been wonderful. I just wondered if if you had any last thoughts on, about 
that about imagination that I haven't asked you the question. If you've been thinking, I really hope he asks me such and such so that I can say <laughs> such and such about imagination. Any last bits? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, the one piece that I would encourage folks to do is to read more science fiction, you know, and to, in a weird way, even though I agree with that report, I don't know, but the general conclusions that you that you shared, I definitely agree with that. Uh, but I think there's a period of resistance. You know, I think there's some currents, some deep undercurrents trying to push back against that. And I see that playing out in a lot of ways here in, in this country uh, with uh, um, this kind of new infatuation for like comic book characters and comic book heroes and comic book stories. Um, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, not that I was a big fan, but but had to uh, read a lot of his materials when I was in school. Joseph Campbell, um, you know the 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 kind of the hero and what that is. I think that's coming back. Those kind of stories and this this deep kind of fascination with science fiction on a certain level is coming back to try to reopen the imagination. I don't the collective. You know, now we're going off into Jungian <laughs> psychology and all this kind of stuff. But I do think there is a truth of folks wanting, um, wanting to be inspired, wanting to be motivated. That some of this, I think, on a mass level, is speaking to. Uh, and I, I think us tapping into that is not a strong thing. It's not a, it's not a point of weakness. It's not a point of escape. I think it's something then it will and can open up the imagination and new possibilities. And I think we should tap into it. 